All right. Today we're talking with Nathan Kinch. Let's hear it from him. G'day guys, Nathan Kinch here coming to you from Down Under. I've spent the last decade helping leaders and practitioners all around the world design more ethical, trustworthy organizations. So welcome back to another edition of Are You a Robot? In case this is your first time, let me jump into what we're doing here at this podcast before we go into the full conversation with Nathan, which was absolutely spectacular. I cannot say enough good things about this guy. But before that, let's just take a second to talk about what Are You a Robot is all about. This is a series where we aim to tackle some of the greatest challenges and questions that stem from AI and related technologies. The way that we're doing that is getting people like Nathan onto the show to talk to me and explain to us what it is they are thinking about, how they are looking at the world. These are the experts in their field. So they've put a lot of thought, they've put a lot of energy and experience focus into these problems that we're facing, and they have their own ways of looking at them. So we are asking questions and trying to create some kind of best practices as we are talking to these different individuals that come on here. I will mention that this is not the only place that the conversation is happening. If you enjoy what we're saying, jump into our Slack community. You can find the links below. It is incredible what is happening there because there are people from all over the world talking and discussing these different problems that we're having or the different obstacles, the different questions any kind of question that you can think of around AI ethics or transparency or fairness and bias, we're trying to discuss that in the Slack community. Get in it. The link is below for you to find in the description. Last but not least, let's talk for a minute about our sponsor, Ethics Grade. They're an ESG ratings company. And for those that do not know what an ESG ratings company is, it is studying the non-financial impact that companies have on their environment. So Ethics Grade is doing something very unique. They are looking at the impact, the non-financial impact that companies have when it, when it comes to their AI programs. So they study and they rate the non-financial impacts that the AI programs have in all of these different companies. So you can go on to the ethics grade website and see how a company like Facebook rates up against a company like Twitter when it comes to their AI ethics, how a company like TikTok compares to a company like Clubhouse. It is fascinating to see these ratings. And I really got to say, I got to tip my hat to all the folks at Ethics Grade for doing the hard work and digging through and checking out the different AI policies and procedures that these companies have. And it gives us as a consumer of the different companies and products a an idea of what they're doing. It gives us more transparency in how companies like Toyota measure up against Tesla how companies like uh, Brex measure up against Monzo. There 
is just about every company you can think of. And if it's not on there, reach out to the ethics grade crew because they are probably putting it on there pretty soon. Go and check out those reports. They're fun to look at and it's really interesting to see how they measure up against each other. All right, that's enough for ethics grade. We're going to get into the conversation now with Nathan. Here we go. Are you a robot? Nathan, it is a pleasure to have you here on the show. I know it is late for you, early for me, but I really wanted to make this work. And I'm really excited to talk to you about the idea of helping organizations become trustworthy. I also know that we're about to get into a lot of other stuff and see where the conversation takes us. But before we do any of that, I think it would be helpful to know a little bit about yourself. How did you get into this? Yeah, look, it's, it's an interesting question. I uh, have somewhat of a non-traditional career pathway. And I, who knows what that means these days, right? Like people are doing all different types of things. And I think this idea that you mm -hmm. go to school, you go to uni, you get one, maybe a few jobs uh, that may be a bit different for our generation. So look, when I was a kid, I was a competitive athlete. Uh, I'm not going to bore you with that story, but I ended up having severe nerve damage in my L4, L5. And so I couldn't play anymore. Um, and I came back home. I was living in the U S at the time, came back home to Australia, tr trying to figure out how to piece my life back together. You know, I thought I was going to be flying around in G fives with Tiger Woods, uh, and that just didn't happen. So I, um, I, I, gosh, I did a bunch of stuff, um, uh, when I was sort of 19 and then came back to the injury problem in sports when I was maybe about 20 and ended up building a, a, a company that was attempting to predict the propensity that elite athletes had to incur soft tissue injuries. And like that's a, that's a really sort of statistically intensive process, right? There's a lot of data. There's a lot of information processing. Um, and I observed between the, uh, the teams who are effectively the employers and the athletes who are effectively the employees, this fundamental power imbalance that, that was the result of lots of different things, but one of them was information asymmetry. And so at that point, I became really interested in in privacy and in power and in the way that, that digital technologies were impacting society. And uh, I sort of took that upon myself to go on a bit of a vendetta to, to try and figure out how, uh, you know, how I could uh, learn more about this stuff and, and potentially spend uh, a number of years of, of my career focused on these, these diverse, complex and, and often quite ambiguous issues. Incredible. So you've got a few companies. Can you tell us about them? <laughs> yeah, I can. I can. Um, as of today, we just announced that we're shutting one of our companies down. Boom, boom. So bit of, oh, wow. bit of a bit of a downer for the day. Um, and that, look, so that's Greater Than X. That's our services firm that's been around for five years. Um, Greater Than X has been a really wonderful experiment. It's enabled us to do incredible work across geographies, across industry contexts. We're a small firm, but we've had an outsized impact. Um, we effectively work with everyone from federal governments. Uh, we did, I should, I should use the correct tense. We did work with everyone from federal governments through to um, large corporations, startups, research and policy institutes, helping them figure out how in these data-intensive or information-intensive businesses or market contexts or ecosystem contexts, how they could more effectively design for the qualities of trustworthiness. So it's effectively a consulting business. Um, 
And, you know, for a variety of different reasons, we'd always thought that that thing was going to have like, like um, a distinct duration. It was effectively a learning engine. Um, and uh, lots of reasons for that, but, but mostly because services businesses are really hard to scale uh, in terms of the, the positive impact that you're intending to have. You know, as you mm-hmm. grow a services business, typically you erode quality, lots of stuff that we don't have to get into. But um, so we'd always wanted to build a platform and, and we've now done that. We've self-funded that. It's called Graded and Learning. Uh, but uh, thanks to COVID and a series of unfortunate events, we we had to wrap up shop uh, a little bit early and, you know, say goodbye. So that, that announcement was made today. So it's a little bit of a somber experience. Um, wow. Greater than learning is is something that I can talk about much more positively um, because it's, uh, it's, you know, it's alive and, and, and well and truly well. Um, so, so greater than learning is something that myself and, and my co-founder, Matt Mitka, who was the chief platform officer at, at Greater Than X, have, have brought to life. It's, it's sort of been um, two and a half years in the making, formally in um, development, a lot of kind of research that went on before that, but formally in development for 12 to 15 months. Um, we refer to it as a social learning platform and collective of ethical change makers that are working together to learn how to design trustworthy organizations that deliver positive social impact. And so there's a, you know, there's a lot of different stuff to that. There's social learning platform, there's collective of ethical change makers, there's, you know, like learning to design trustworthy organizations, and then there's positive social impact. And so, you know, we can, we can break down different areas of that if, um, if, it, if it makes sense. But mm. the long and the short of it is we're trying to design quite a different type of organization. Um, we're actually right now looking uh, very intensively um, and through a community-based uh, uh, decision-making process, um, we are likely to end up becoming or incorporating as a platform co-op, so effectively being member-owned and member-governed, so a more kind of like equitable, democratic um, organisational structure and governance structure. And we're really trying to bring together a lot of different um, things that are going on around the world in applied ethics, in tech ethics, in responsible innovation, in AI ethics, in data ethics, in privacy and data protection, you know, and all these areas are like interrelated and interconnected um, so that we can together as a group of practitioners or leaders figure out how to do this stuff more quickly, more effectively for the benefit of millions, potentially billions of people around the world. Uh, and then on the side, my wife and I sort of do like more of like a, a lifestyle business uh, called Lamina Community, Lamina meaning leaf. Um, it's kind of like a diversified lifestyle business. We have like an impact investment arm. And over the last few years, we've made 65 investments mm-hmm. in startups. Um, we have like this subscription service, which is about taking sort of um, uh, evidence from um, different types of literature, the n- nutritional science literature, et cetera, and making it like really accessible for folks that are just wanting to make tomorrow slightly better than today. This isn't about, hey, be perfect tomorrow. Um, it's about just make that tiny little change and, you know, we'll try and make sense of it for you. And we're also working on an evidence-based eatery, uh, sort of like kind of, mm-hmm. kind of like a, a cafe where the, the menu is constructed based on the nutritional sciences, uh, which, is, which is somewhat interesting. Wow. And then, you know, I'm a dog walker. I'm a, I'm a home chef. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a daddy daycare. I'm all those different types of things. So I'm, I'm well and truly on my toes. Incredible. It seems like a lot of what you do is around trying to help people, trying to expose this, uh, the moral high route. And I'm wondering what your motivations behind that are. Yeah, that's a that's a really that's a really great. It's a super deep question, isn't it? Um, 
because you kind of have to do some pretty radical self-inquiry and, and introspection. Um, I, I think it's, it's like anything. Like I can probably give you the sort of simple answer and then I, and if we want to go deeper, then I can, I can, I can nerd out with you. But so nice. at, a, at a really high level, like um, I'm, I'm a living creature. Um, I think I'm sentient. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I observe the world around me, the natural world, the human world, um, the interconnectedness and the interdependence. And I kind of go, it's a bit of a botch job. You know, we're not probably doing what, what I believe um, our species is capable of in terms of our kindness, our compassion, our empathy, our courage, our ability to work together to, to create a future that is better than, you know, the, the reality that we're experiencing today. Um, and, you know, I, and I, I, I sort of extrapolate out a bit and go, holy crap, like I've got a, I've got a young daughter. I, I really want her to have like an amazing life where, where she's able to engage with people openly, where she's able to explore and diverge and make mistakes and it be okay, you know, and, and learn through, throughout this, this kind of crazy journey that is life. Um, and you know, I, I sort of think, well, <laughs> two ways to look at it, right? I can be like super hedonistic in terms of my, my, my moral philosophy and go, screw it. Let's just maximize pleasure. Um, let's live an amazing life and, and like, like mm. push to the side, everything else. Um, or, you know, it's kind of like, well, maybe I have some capacity to, to not make a difference independently, but rather, um, as part of a broader movement, um, as part of a much larger group of people, you know, doing tiny things on a daily basis, maybe that will compound, maybe that will, you know, maybe that will be something that we look back on at some point in the future as being like really positive. And that, that's kind of the, the angle that I've, you know, that I've taken. So there's lots of kind of nuanced um, motivations. A lot of them I probably don't understand super well. Um, and, and maybe that's something that I keep trying to mm. to. To, to better discover over the coming years. But, you know, at a high level, it's kind of that. Like, I think we can do better. I look at the trajectory that we're on and I'm kind of like, ah, oh, shit, we've got to do something differently. And there's just lots of people that I care about. There's lots of things that I care about that, that I would love to have a beautiful future. And, you know, maybe I can play some tiny, tiny role in, uh, in realizing that. Mm. Yeah, I love what you said there, the small steps and making it like bite size and really digestible. It doesn't need to be these great leaps forward. It can just be the small steps, doing things a little bit better than yesterday. It seems like that is a fundamental uh, way of constructing things for you. And it's really useful because we all know that anything in life you got to put the time in. It's not going to be easy at first. You just want to do a little bit better each time. And then over a year or, the, or a decade, you're going to see that compound and become either a, a new life skill or whatever it is. You're mastering some kind of art or, or just be, being healthier in general. So I appreciate that viewpoint very much on it because I'm, I'm in line with that. I am totally sold on that idea. Now, let's change gears a little bit to companies mm -hmm. and the whole ethics around what companies are doing. I know you have a lot of experience with this. I'm wondering how you're helping companies become more ethical. 
Yeah, look, so it's kind of like a multi-part question, isn't it? So, so the how uh, I'm supporting organisations in becoming more ethical is, is somewhat complex, but I can, I can certainly unpack it. But I think it, makes, it maybe makes sense to just touch on some of the broader issues as a starting point because it gives us a frame of reference. It gives us like a where are we today? Um, and then the where do we want to get to and how might we get there? That, that kind of like it starts becoming a more coherent picture. So, you know, mm. if you look at the way that most organisations operate today, you, you might argue that it's, it's somewhat the result of um, uh, uh, economic structures that are based on certain ideologies, in this particular case, neoliberalism. And, you know, neoliberal economics is sort of the, the, the prevailing ideology and, and maybe one of the most successful ideologies of all time. But when you look at these, these structures, these social structures, these political structures, these economic structures, um, and, and you go, well, what is a corporation? Okay, it's a legal fiction, um, uh, which, which means it's an intersubjective reality. It kind of exists on a piece of paper, right? Like it's, it's this made-up thing. That's one of the sort of things that we think are, are, are fundamentally unique about human beings is we can just like make stuff up out of, out of thin air, um, imagine realities and then go about creating them. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so, so a corporation is this legal fiction, but really it's a, it's a group of people that band together, work together, um, collaborate, connect, um, disagree, all these different dynamics, but um, in the pursuit of some type of common interest or common goal, right? Now, um, the, the, the perspective from Milton Friedman that was sort of popular, popularized um, in the 70s, I believe, was that business is in the business of business, um, meaning like businesses are in the business of making money, right? Uh, and so, so a lot of the organizations that we work with are um, uh, public organizations um, in that they, they, have, they have shareholders, they have institutional investors, et cetera. Um, and if you look at the structure of these companies, um, like, like you effectively have the shareholders at the top um, and shareholders, like it's important to probably categorize that. You have very powerful shareholders and then you have like normal people um, who have this tiny little, you know, so primarily you have these institutional investors that actually have um, very large, sometimes even control, controlling stakes in these organizations. You have the board of the directors, you have the CEO, you have the executive committee, you have everything else. Um, the CEO is hired and fired by the board, reports to the board, etc. The board is responsible for corporate governance, setting strategy, identifying and mitigating risk. Um, that's a spectrum of uncertainty. Uh, and, and, you know, they report to, to their shareholders, to the market. Um, and, all of this is based on like these quarterly uh, reporting cycles. It's all based on these economic metrics. And, you know, we've got stuff like ESG and things like that that come into it now, but they're like, they're like tacked on, nice to haves. They're, they're potentially beginning to play a more meaningful role, but, but we're not there yet, right? We've got a long yeah. ways to go. So, so these companies are often um, doing things um, in alignment to their interests, uh, in alignment to their incentive structures, they have incentive structures that, that encourage certain behaviors and discourage other behaviors. Um, and at times, you know, the, the thing that they are incentivized to do, you know, as a collective of people behaving in a given way, um, might be um, counterproductive to a bunch of things that, that society values, um, like, you know, um, some given natural ecology, right? Like something that's really important. So, it's important to recognize that it's not like this, 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 these evil people that are doing bad things and acting really intentionally, unethically, 
Um, I think that that does happen. And if you look at actually the, the composition of CEOs, um, many of them are sort of narcissistic sociopaths, et cetera, but not all the time. Um, I think you often have very good people, very well-intentioned people, but they're stuck in a challenging system that makes doing what is most socially preferable very challenging because it may not be the thing that's rewarded. And that which is rewarded um, um, is typically done, right? So so we go into these organizations, this, this comes full circle, what do we help them do? Um, primarily, our role has been about, okay, you are a, a very heavily data-driven organization. You require data to operate. Um, you require data to understand your customers. You require data to deliver value to your customers. Well, at the moment, basically, all you're doing is like hooving up all of this different data. There's not that much of a strategy to it. It's kind of like, we'll get it all um, and then we'll figure out what to do with it later. And there are lots of different risks to that. There are reputational risks. There are ethical risks. Um, there are very tangible risks, meaning if there is a, a data breach um, and, for instance, there is identity theft that results from that data breach, that can have a very demonstrable impact, a tangible impact, a material impact on people's well-being, their access to credit, all different types of things, right? So we help them work in, in a way that, that better considers the the trustworthiness of their actions as it relates to how they're using information, how they're using data about the people that they that they represent, the people that they serve. And that means things like practicing privacy and security by design. It means things like um, changing the way that a service design workflow um, operates so that at every stage of the service design process and at every stage of the service design output, the trustworthiness of um, the, the data processing activities is considered, the trustworthiness of the way that the organization discloses information is considered, etc. Um, and we engage in a reasonably empirical process to help the organization make progress through those cycles of change um, with data to support. Remember, we don't want to go in selling a pipe dream and not be able to demonstrate that progress is being made. Um, and over time, uh, ideally as quickly and effectively as possible, but over time demonstrate this new way of doing things, this more participatory, this more inclusive, this more equitable way of using people's information is actually beneficial, not just to the people that the information relates to, but to the organization itself. Um, and, you know, that is that is still a, a work in progress. Uh, we've made wonderful, um, mm. we've made wonderful progress over the last few years, but... Um, we, we have a ways to go. Let's put it that way. So many things you said right there ring so true for me. I'm actually doing another podcast right now with a machine learning operations community. And one of the topics that we're doing is data collection. Mm -hmm. And so we go around interviewing some people that are well-known in the field and experienced. And we ask them, what are some of the main problems or pain points with data collection? And some some of the answers we've gotten have been, it's not about data collection, it's about data hoarding and really just taking anything that you can get and then keeping it forever and never reassessing, do I really need this data? Because by default, an engineer or someone, a data scientist maybe who is working on a project or a problem, they'll default to, yeah, let's get the data because we don't need it today, but maybe later on we'll need it. And so then you collect everything instead of saying, what's the problem I'm trying to solve? And then what data do I need to get there? 
right? So I, I find that really interesting. And then on the other hand, what you were talking about, going in there and being incentivized for the wrong reasons is something that comes up again and again. And it just shows how difficult it is to do the right thing. If you're being incentivized and you're getting a bunch of money thrown at you for not being ethical or not following maybe the high moral ground, it is very difficult to just say, well, I don't want all that money or I'm not going to make my shareholders money. Like you said, it's very much like the way that the corporation is architected is that maybe it's not one person who is doing that, although sometimes it can be. But the way that things are architected is you get the each person is leaning on the other or each person has to report to another. And like you said, the CEO is reporting to the board and the board reporting to the shareholders. And the shareholders, what do they want? They want to see their stock go up. So it's very difficult to see that cycle being broken. And I'm wondering how you're specifically, like you said, you're going in there with data. Has it been easy to convince people? I mean, what have you been doing? What are some of these arguments that you're using? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good point. And let me, before we go into the, the, the conversations that we're having and, 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 you know, how we convince or, or how we create alignment, or identify alignment, I'll just give you an interesting example, right? So, a body of research that we did in, in the US with uh, a client over there um, that ended up becoming um, a really exciting piece of work that, um, that we published about uh, saw us sort of like critically interrogate the workflows of all different people within this organization, like machine learning engineers, um, product managers, uh, user experience designers and user researchers, sales folks, um, uh, you know, software engineers, like it was a really sort of like great snapshot of the organization, like sort of, um, uh, and one of the things that we looked at was what is the role that, um, that kind of like decision-making hierarchies um, and power structures have within the organization and the influence that that has on people's behavior. And there was this really simple prompting question that, that was asked. And it was basically like, and you know, I'll, I'll use a machine learning engineer in this case. So you've, you, you know, you've, um, You've designed, you've you've trained, and you've experimented with some model, right? Um, and you've identified that that even though tomorrow is the is the go live day, like like you've identified some issue. You take it to your boss, and they go, no, 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 don't worry about that. We've got to deploy tomorrow, right? Because they're they're being incentivized to do that. There's all these different dependencies, etc. What do you do? And the answer was unanimously deploy, even though the person is like like. Yeah super ethically concerned about something that they've explicitly identified. Um, and that person was, was the fact that they're thinking about it very likely means they're a really good person. They're thinking about other people. They're thinking about the consequences of their actions. But because of these structures within organizations, it's kind of like man, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. So I just wanted to like highlight that with a really simple example that so many of us can probably empathize with because like, you know, and it's like whistleblowing and stuff like that, right? Anyways, so I'll, I'll come back to the, the question that you asked. Um, we no, that's such at, a good point. At, at, at Greater Than X have uh, for a long time had this kind of idea that there was this this cost to convince, right? This And, and this is a bunch of different um, variables that, that give us a number. How much money does it cost us to take someone from, I'm not convinced, to, yes, we've started working together. 
And if you're a big organization, let's say you're a PricewaterhouseCoopers, a PwC, um, you can fund the cost to convince, right? Small organizations working with large organizations, they can't fund the cost to convince. It will cripple them. They will go bankrupt, right? So we very, very early on developed um, both heuristic and formal processes and practices to assess like whether there was a meeting of the minds prior to engaging with a firm, right, a, a client. You know, you know, do they have the right intent? What are their current practices? You know, uh, how heavily are they investing in these areas? Like lots of different sort of categories of, of inquiry. And what we began to find was that by being really explicit about who we wanted to work with, the way that we worked, the fact that we did do things a bit differently, you know, so we, when it comes to, to ethics, we have this distinct approach to operationalizing ethics and we design these sort of like ethical decision-making systems, right, which enable um, proactive, retroactive, retrospective decision-making in a variety of different contexts across the business. But they're focused on like, skill, like skills, they're focused on behavior. They're not just, hey, here's this principle um, that's kind of fluffy that you don't really understand or know how to interpret, just go and make it real. Um, but the CEO is going to go stand up on stage next week and, and talk about how great our, our AI ethics principles are or whatever, right? And that's, a, that's something that's, that we could have a bit of a laugh about. But, you know, so, so we sort of take, yeah. this, take this approach. Um, and as a result of that, 90% of, of our deal flow, of our commercial deal flow was inbound. And it came from folks that were effectively qualified in terms of their intent because they, they almost didn't reach out to us unless they were willing to do this. And, and you know, we were able to really quickly like, like tease out those we wouldn't work with by sending them this, this sort of checklist. So an example, really quickly, I get invited into a very large bank in Australia. I won't name them. Um, I get invited into a very large bank in Australia in these very fancy offices in Sydney. Um, they, I'm not sure if they're trying to impress me, right? But they take me up to like the 50th floor or whatever in Barangaroo, which is this beautiful new, um, newly developed area in, in, in Sydney that overlooks the harbour and the bridge and stuff like that. Anyway, it was really lovely. Um, better offices than I've ever had, let's put it that way. And, uh, you know, they, they're sort of asking questions, sharing <laughs> stuff about what they do. And they're like, you know, can you come back to us with a proposal? And um, the answer was no, let me come back to you with some questions first. And so we, we send over this um, effectively um, checklist of things that we're trying to, to identify to achieve um, this kind of like um, ethical fit, if you will. Uh, is the relationship likely to work based on common uh, values and principles, et cetera? And, you know, never heard back from. So, but that's really good, right? Because that means we don't waste the time. Um, and the relationship wouldn't have been productive anyway because they were just wanting yes people, we're not going to be yes people, so all that different type of stuff. So, look, um, to answer the question succinctly, we would identify um, folks that had similar values, similar principles to us and were, were reasonably committed. It always takes some additional work, but reasonably committed to doing this stuff quite rigorously um, and doing it well and being accountable to their actions, owning the consequence of their actions, both positive and negative. Uh, and because of the way that we communicated with the market, all of our inbound deal flow um, was like highly qualified um, and 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 in almost all cases super aligned to to the way that we wanted to the way that we wanted to work so, so that was kind of how we did it now if generally speaking you're talking about well what's kind of the business case for doing this I, I think I can articulate that reasonably well and it, it's worth saying that bef before I get into this trust is actually a reasonably well studied phenomenon uh, phenomena excuse me um, across different disciplines um, in the social sciences evolutionary psychology behavioral psychology etc 
And uh, there's still discrepancies in the literature, right? And there, there, there are um, that, that makes it challenging for organizations because most organizations aren't particularly scientific. Um, you know, they care about results, not about like like learning um, or the rigor of an experience that they execute to learn um, or an experiment they execute to learn. So uh, most organizations in my experience don't understand this stuff particularly well. Just they haven't invested the, the time, the resources to understand it particularly well. So just it's important to, to caveat with that. Um, but when you look at the business case for trust, I think there is a pretty good one. So um, in 2018, late 2018, I think it was November, Accenture released this systematic review of the performance of 7,030 companies. It was called their Competitive Agility Index. And what they were able to determine was that trust was disproportionately impactful in the context of bottom line business outcomes like EBITDA and stuff like that, right? Um, which is which is a really powerful sort of like thematic insight. So trust, wow, like at a at a kind of like high level seems to be really important to businesses. If, if there's a trust breach, um, you know, there are, there are economic losses. If trust is gained, there's potentially economic gain, surplus, et cetera. Um, and we compare that with other um, resources on the same topic. Uh, so, so, so that helps us identify trust is important. It, it's very likely correlated to, to key business outcomes. And then you go forward a couple of years to the Sorry, 2020. Sorry, just jump in real fast. Barometer. Yeah, go for it. Are you talking about trust between a company and its clients or trust within the company between coworkers? That, that's a really or good both. question. It's, it's something I should have qualified. Uh, yeah, so, so in that particular study, we're talking about the trust that the, basically the organization's um, key external stakeholders have in the organization itself. So, so primarily, how much do customers trust the organization? And that might be referred to as brand trust. And, you know, there, there are lots mm-hmm. of different ways in which, which this is sliced and diced. But that's primarily what I'm talking about. However, trust within, and there's pretty good research on this in a sort of like an organizational design, um, organizational psychology context, trust in the workplace, super important, um, but sort of like another topic entirely, um, even though it's directly related, right? Because all of this stuff is interconnected and interdependent, no matter how much we, we like to kind of like break things down into silos. So it, look, it's a good qualification. So, so yeah, so trust is important. Um, customer trust is correlated with business outcomes, right? Uh, and then in 2020, the Edelman Trust Barometer, which is arguably the biggest sort of like um, uh, kind of like landscape assessment of, of trust um, based on a variety of different factors all around the world, uh, identified that, um, and it's changed a little bit in the most recent 2021 uh, Edelman Trust Barometer, uh, but it identified that no organizational category was seen as both ethical and competent. And so business was seen as the most, so they, they, they sort of visualized this using this, this um, quadrant, a little bit of a Gartner-style quadrant. Um, and what you have in the competence dimension is 50 to negative 50, so basically a 100-point scoring system. And in the ethics dimension, you have negative um, uh, 35 to 35, so 70-point scoring system. Um, so, so no organizational category is seen as both competent and ethical. Business was seen as the most competent. Um, I believe non-for-profits, NGOs might have been perceived as the uh, most ethical. Um, but no one had like a net positive, uh, like a net trust score that was positive. And, and so you kind of look at that and you go, wow. So trust is really important, but no one's doing it well. Like, okay, we've we got to critically interrogate why that is and, and, and we can absolutely do that. But I think we have to make a decision now 
about whether or not we want to be more trusted. Because I think we can, we can reasonably confidently assume that being more trusted is going to be beneficial to our business. It's going to be beneficial to all of the stakeholders that we represent. And that really high level sort of analysis is something that speaks, um, even to some of the most commercially astute operators within these organizations. And, um, what you then have the opportunity to do if there are nodding heads is go, well, let's talk about how, because that's actually where this matters, right? Like it, like we have to agree on that before we get started. We have to agree that it's, that it's important, but the, you know, the, the, the details matter a lot here. Um, and your ability to, to act upon the types of actions or interventions or strategies, however you want to frame it, that are likely to get you from being, um, you know, maybe even actively distrusted, which is not a good place to be, um, passionately distrusted in some cases towards, you know, the, the kind of like, like the net trust positive, um, so, so that, that's kind of the general, general uh, perspective. If people are skeptical, there's, there's, and there's, there's so much more data than, than that to call upon, there is a way to describe it. Whether they buy into it is something we can't control. If they do buy into it, um, and, and this is really where, where for us we have excelled, is, is kind of in the how. You know, because lots of people can talk about that high-level stuff, but what specifically should we be doing in order to close that trust gap? Um, yes. you know, that's where we've spent, I've spent like a long time and that's where, you know, at greater than X, we spent the last five years. And that's so important. I mean, so many things there that I want to unpack and it's so brilliant to know that you're a getting people that are coming to you and they're already pre-qualified. They already are on the wagon, we could say, and they want to do this and it's not just lip service. And B, the idea of trust, I think we all instinctively understand that, right? Like, I don't want to go out and buy from a company that I know is doing things that are nefarious. I mm. automatically think, hmm, yeah, probably not. And then the other piece that I wanted to just unpack and disseminate a little bit was the idea of the machine learning engineer who has to push or deploy tomorrow and they come up with the problem and I'm, you know, I talk with machine learning engineers every day and I can totally relate because it is something that you go, yeah, that's, that's how I do it. And then if there's a big problem, we figure it out later, but you know that there's a problem and you have to deploy and it's just a really sticky situation that you get put in. So how to break down those organizational barriers so something mm -hmm. like that doesn't happen, right? Like, and yeah. it feels like it's very much an organizational like archetype or architecture because the boss is needing to complete whatever their KPIs are or they have some kind of standard that they need to uphold. And if there's something that needs to be pushed, it's got to be pushed and it doesn't matter what we find in it. So that's a, that's a really tricky one. And maybe you can talk about how to break down those organizational barriers so that it's okay to fail in those circumstances if what you're doing is more ethical. Yeah, look, you, I think you're spot on. It, it's an it's like an org architecture or an org design thing, but it's but it is broader than that. It's like a systems design thing. It's like a you know a, a human systems design thing, like you know economic systems, political systems, social systems, etc. 
you know, and, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, like the work from like uh, Sustainability Institute, one of the founders, uh, uh, the founder, uh, Donella Meadows, um, you know, she wrote this article many, many years ago. Um, and that, 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 that's a great book, Thinking and Systems, a primer. She wrote this article many years ago that, that refers to these 12 um, places to intervene in a system um, like the, like, and that they're sort of referred to as leverage points, right? Different ways in which you can, you can, by changing one thing in the system, have a, have a, um, a, a more fundamental impact on the way that the system operates and interconnects. Uh, and, and I think what's really important here is that the stuff that, that is likely to have the greatest impact, which isn't always easiest, um, you know, so, so you're in terms of tactics and interventions, um, uh, and, and identifying which leverage point to, to kind of like target and, and execute on, like there are different criteria that you're paying attention to, right? Like it's kind of, kind of like a desirability, viability, feasibility assessment that, that goes with this. But, but like transcending paradigms or, or paradigm shifts are really important. Like what are the stories that we tell ourselves? What are, what, what are our ideologies? What are, like what are the things that like we almost like implicitly value and we don't really understand why these kind of like, like – um, you know, these, these cultural narratives, like that's, that's really important. Um, you, you know, the goals of the system really, really important, like in the context of, and maybe we start with that one, right? So, so let's just say as a, for instance, and I'll use tangible reference points here, right? So, so for a, for a corporation that's listed on the NASDAQ, uh, the, the goal is super, can I swear? I I won't, super effing simple. It's, Quarter on quarter, don't worry. (laughs) Increase shareholder value, right? Like that. That's it. It's like it's real simple. It's like just just keep fucking increasing shareholder value, and and so well, what like what is everyone doing? Like that is the that is the messiah. That is the thing that like people are bowing down for is like increasing shareholder value. And you're kind of like, well, shit, is that the right goal? And and you also have to ask, well, well, what comes at the expense of optimizing for that particular outcome? Like, you know, there might be referred to as externalities, but like, like, like I think that's BS. Like, then, like that's just a way to kind of like, like, like um, uh, push to the side any kind of like meaningful accountability and stuff that we maybe can't ac- actually account for within a, a kind of like well-structured model because, um, you know, natural systems, social systems are really complex and really hard to model, right? Because all models are simplifications of the real world. So... You know, let's just let's just take that right. So, so okay, we're we're a normal organization that's publicly listed, trading on the Nasdaq, and at the moment, um, like our our, and no matter how we pitch this via our PR, marketing messages, CEO on stage, etc., like our goal is very simple: quarter on quarter increase shareholder value. Well, what if we step back and we go, like? We're going to engage with curiosity. We're going to try and understand the problem space. We're going to try and understand the way in which our uh, approach to shareholder primacy is potentially negatively impacting a variety of different um, uh, sort of factors in society that are really important, probably more important than, than this, this sole focus on economic growth. Um, and we are going to courageously engage in a variety of different actions um, with an experimental approach, we don't have to do it all overnight, but with an experimental approach um, that, that might lead us towards some type of better outcome, right? And, and let's just say after some process of work, um, someone comes across the Happiness Research Institute from Copenhagen 
and they look at some work from, it might have been early this year, late last year, uh, called Wally, Wellbeing Adjusted Life Years. And they go, wow, imagine if the goal for our corporation was to increase the well-being adjusted life years of the broad and diverse group of stakeholders that we represent, right? So, so we have these, these kind of like physiological and um, uh, also like, like inherently subjective um, uh, kind of like well-being determinants that are brought together and they make up this kind of like, like one metric to rule them all. And like, wow, what, what would our organization look like if we were optimizing for well-being adjusted life years. Now, that doesn't mean we have to become like a loss-leading corporation. We could still make money, but like that's our goal. And we make money when we enhance the well-being adjusted life years of the, the broad and diverse group of stakeholders that we represent. Now, go way down into the organization, and I am using a hierarchical sort of top-down command control army-style structure here. Um, not that I think that's the absolute best way for organizations to oper- operate. Like we're, we're sort of looking at a sort of sociocratic model um, that has meritocracy in it and stuff like that. But, but anyways, I'll push that to the side. Um, so, so you go all the way down and you've got like this kind of like mid-level, uh, let's call it, you know, mid-level, yeah, machine learning engineer um, that's responsible for the deploy- deployment pipeline of, you know, some particular um, uh, function of the business, right? Um, model deployment function somewhere in the business. And, uh, you know, issue is identified. Um, now, now, if they use a framework like ours, then these things really should be picked up um, most of the time before something's even close to deployment. But that's it's not always going to happen, right? Um, so, so identifies something and then comes to to her boss and goes, "Okay, um, I've identified this thing." And the boss goes, "How do you reckon it's going to impact well-being adjusted life years?" I know that sounds kind of crazy, right? It's almost laughable. But how do you think it's going to impact well-being adjusted life years? Can we quickly get it? Can we quickly develop an understanding of that? Holy shit, it's going to negatively impact. Don't deploy, don't deploy, don't deploy, don't deploy. Right? And then, you know, team meeting, okay, like let's do a let's do a retrospective effectively, like immediately. And there, there are lots of different structures that that we operationalize to help make all of this easier and more systematic. But, you know, like what went wrong? How did this happen? How did we miss it? What can we learn from it? What are we not going to do next time? What are we going to do next time, et cetera, et cetera. Build up the knowledge base because all of these things, like a, like ethics is a decision-making process, right? And every now and then, you know, a new decision will be made, a new ethical decision will be made within an organization, but quite often the same decisions are made over and over again. So all of this stuff goes into a knowledge base. That knowledge base is accessible for everyone. Um, and so quite often, um, the ethics fatigue that a lot of people are met with when they're constantly trying to make these sort of microethical decisions kind of gets pushed to the side because there's actually this body of knowledge that gives them confidence that these things have been have been done before. There's you know solid processes that have been executed. They can adhere to you know kind of like ethical best practice. Um, you know, anyways, that so that's kind of how it could work, right? And I know that's I know that's compli- complicated, and we're talking in in abstract words here. And a lot of folks want to get really kind of like tangible and, and material. And, and so it's really hard in, in a podcasting context. So I apologize, but, but that's kind of it, right? So if we change the goals of the corporation, we change the way that everything works within the organization. We change the tools that they use, right? Because they might, they might go, oh, wow, um, we're not going to hire, we're not going to um, procure, um, procurement functions of big businesses are very powerful. We're not going to procure this product from this corporation because they're building surveillance tech for said government that's being used to, to oppress their citizens. Um, so we're not buying that, right? Um, 
you know, like it, it impacts, it impacts everything um, from the macro to the micro and everything in between. And, and that's why I, like we look at this, although from a systems, a, like a complex system standpoint, um, and then a lot of people will probably be skeptical about that because it's like, well, you're trying, you are trying to do everything. It's like, no, no, not necessarily. We just want to have a reasonable view of things that are going on, you know, the, the interconnectedness and the interdependencies, um, you know, the idea flow, et cetera, so that we can understand how the organization operates, so that we can design a future state that, that, that enables this, uh, this new way of doing things. And then we can progressively work towards that step by step. And that's when the tiny sort of steps approach comes into it, right? Because like nothing that we do happens overnight. Like this transformative technology starts changing the world. Like, like I don't know, the iPhone had a really big impact on, on society, right? Um, as a fairly recent example, like that took years and years and years and years of blood, sweat, and very likely tears, you know? So (laughs) I think sometimes we don't appreciate that. And this is no different, you know, get a real good understanding of where you are today, be ambitious about where you want to get to in the future and be super pragmatic about how you're going to make progress day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year to get towards that goal. Even if you never get there, the pursuit of progress is what matters most brilliantly put and the idea of changing the north star for companies i really like that you mentioned that ethics is a decision making process can you unpack that statement a little bit more yeah i can so uh so <sighs> moral philosophy is kind of old um and when i'm referring to moral philosophy i'm mostly referring to western moral philosophy um, I'm not super uh, well-versed in Eastern philosophy, and I should be. It's probably a, a shortcoming um, because there's, there's just so much from the East that is really powerful. Um, and when folks from the West learn about it, they're like, whoa. Like, that is, like, you know, that is, that, is, that, is so, that is so on point. But anyway, so I'm mostly referring to, to Western philosophy. Um, these are things that we've been thinking about for thousands of years, right? Um, and... Uh, you know, you'll have people talk about normative ethics and then applied ethics and all these different types of things. Uh, I think for a lot of folks that haven't spent years and years studying moral philosophy um, and attempting to kind of like take um, like sort of um, theories or whatever from normative ethics into applied ethics and actually like do them out in the real world, um, they find this stuff really ambiguous and really daunting. You know, so it's so it's kind of like it's it's hard to interact with. So uh, a partner that we've worked with in the past is called the, the Ethics Center, um, and they're based in Australia. and And they wrote a, a blog called like What is Ethics? We We Have the Answer. Now, like like you know, that's probably a little bit overconfident in some ways because you know these things are going to continue to be debated, right? But basically, what they propose, and and I love this, we love this, makes a heap of sense, is that ethics is the decision making process that you execute, you know, in a given situation to, to um, make a judgment and then act upon that judgment in a way that best aligns to your purpose, your values, and your principles. And, and so, you know, defining those purpose, values, and principles, really important, right? Because how can you make a decision in alignment to your purpose, values, and principles if you don't have them? Um, but the process is what matters. And so as a for instance, right, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll try and hammer this home with a really um, a, tangible example. So the AI ethics lab has done some really great work 
to bring together a few hundred, it might be a little bit over a couple of hundred, I think, I can't remember the last time I checked, but let's, let's call it a couple of hundred there or thereabouts, um, published principles from all different organizations all around the world, like public bodies, private organizations, um, you know, public corporations, et cetera, um, AI ethics principles. And they neatly fit into four categories. So, so what does that mean? What, I, what do I think the insight from that is? It means that we spent hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe more, developing AI ethics principles. Because remember, in almost all of these cases, an expensive consulting firm has come in to help, right? Um, yeah, that's, a, that's an issue for another time. Um, yeah. The consulting model is broken. Uh, <laughs> expensive consultants have come in to help. We spent hundreds of millions of dollars um, doing work to agree that we agree on four categorical principles, like parent principles, right? fuck it, move on. Like, okay, we kind of agree that that's the case. These are the things that we should be fighting to defend, the stuff that we should be, you know, uh, upholding, valuing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What matters now is that we start doing, right? And there's very little evidence um, in the marketplace that organizations are operationalizing these principles in any meaningful capacity and that it's having a direct impact on anything that goes on out in the real world, the way that the organization operates, the way that it makes money, the way that it interfaces with the market, et cetera. So, I think that Ethics Center's work is really powerful because it forces you to come back and go, okay, well, we might have these principles, which are kind of like heuristics, rules of thumb, whatever, um, like, but our job is to then execute a given process to make the decision, well, how do we execute that process? Well, we have, we, we have distinct processes and practices. We have distinct tools. Um, you know, we have uh, a way through which we include the stakeholders that are going to be uh, impacted by the decision that we're making and the action that we're proposing to take in the process. Like how the fuck can you as an organization make an ethical judgment call about something without including the people that are being impacted? And then you come out on your high horse, you know, at some big conference and you say, we're really ethical. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious, but that's close to what happens. How do you know, right? You don't. You've just, you've, just, you've just made a judgment call. And maybe that judgment call is reasonably informed because it's based on, you know, standards of normative ethics, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't actually know. And so, the, the, again, just coming back to it, by forcing the organization to, yeah, develop this really great foundation, purpose, values, and principles, et cetera, but execute the process in a way that's inclusive and participatory, um, uh, you know, like like you're actually doing the work. And so when I say ethics is a process, I mean in alignment to the ethics center's definition and because in our experience it's so powerful because it forces people to do the work, it gets them hands-on, it, it, it is such a powerful tool for empathy, right? Because you are making these really challenging decisions that are going to have a fundamental impact on people's lives and they're part of the process right? They're not excluded from the process. They're not just impacted downstream. They're part of the process. Um, and so, so there are many reasons why I think it's powerful, but that's sort of what I meant. And that's, you know, some of the kind of like categorical reasons why I think it's really useful. So we've got a few questions left because we're coming to the end of our time. Sadly, I could talk to you all day. I really love digging into what you've got in your mind. It's incredible to hear how knowledgeable you are about this and how much thought and really dedication has been put into all of these ideas and this experience that you have. We went out and we asked some of your, uh, your acquaintances what some good questions would be for oh, no. you on oh, this no. podcast. And 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, we got actually Matthew, and I'll probably butcher this last name, Matthew Mikta, Mitka, Mitka. Mitka, Mitka, yeah. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> Was asking these questions. Well, let's just start with one uh, because I don't think we have time to ask all of them. He gave some great ones. So how can organizations in the broader ecosystem better collaborate on solutions to operationalizing data ethics? Mm. Yeah, Matt is, Matt is a very impressive individual and someone I've worked a lot with over a number of years. Uh, and so I knew he'd ask a challenging question. Um, so, so this is something that's probably difficult to concretely describe via, because often when it, when it comes to like entities and relationships and things like that, just visualizations are so much more powerful. So let me give this a crack. So, so what he's asking is how can we get folks within the ecosystem to better collaborate so that we can get better at operationalizing data ethics? I think I understood that. So, um, but look, there, there, there are lots of, there are lots of different ways. Um, but let me give a concrete example. So one of the things that we did at Greater Than X is um, uh, actively contribute to this thing called the consumer data right here in Australia. And basically it's, um, uh, it's sort of like a national data sharing infrastructure. It's new, it's developing, it's evolving. And what it proposes to do is put Australian citizens and residents um, in the driver's seat, like give them more control over their information um, and enable them to explicitly uh, grant permission. I'm not going to use the word consent because that, that has very specific connotations and preconditions and stuff like that, even though they use consent. Grant, excuse me, grant per permission to approval organizations to um, utilize their data for a distinct purpose, right? Um, and the, the way that the ecosystem has largely been designed is through speculation behind closed doors. Um, uh, it, it's been poorly informed. Um, a lot of the problems that they're trying to solve, and that's not to say that there hasn't been some good work, like there's heaps of good work, lots of passionate people working on this, but a lot of the problems that they're trying to solve have been solved elsewhere. You know, just, the, the process was really broken. So what, what might they have done instead? Um, and I think this is a really great way to, to um, make a bit more tangible uh, an answer to Matt's question. What they could have done was they could have put a proposal out that was completely transparent where everyone in Australia had access to it, right? We're thinking of changing the way that, that you get to share your data with trustworthy organizations here in Australia. Here's the way that we're thinking about doing it, right? Boom, 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 boom. Um, we're doing this because at the moment, like organizations are the ones that are disproportionately benefiting from the way the digital economy works. You know, blah, 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 right? Good rationale, et cetera. They could have done a bit of a campaign around it. Um, remember, this is like, this is like a national infra digital infrastructure project. Like they could have spent a little bit of money on it. A few million dollars max. Like it's not like, it's nothing. It's less than a rounding error, right? So they put this proposal out there and then there's this um, sort of democratic decision-making process. It could be through quadratic voting, like lots of different ways that they could have done it, right? And people actually, like the people who are going to be directly impacted by this engage. But then you could have some type of meritocracy component where you've got organizations that are uniquely able to contribute on, on different areas that are really important to all of this, um, actively contributing to the process, um, uh, contributing to the proposal, um, and contributing to how it kind of moves forward. But let's just assume that all of that works really well. And you've got 
um, like consumer policy um, groups working, you've got academics working, you've got organisations like ours contributing to this, and then you've got citizens and residents from Australia. Not everyone, not all 25 million people are going to engage, but you have some, right? Um, and maybe you could design this in such a way that you increase the likelihood that it's a representative sample of the population. Happy days. All of this is possible. None of this is, none, none of this is actually particularly challenging. It just requires some thought um, and a little bit of cooperation. So let's say it's like, yes, we really want to do this. And then there's this phase where it's kind of like, okay, um, like we now need to figure out the specifics of the how. You know, a process could be designed where there is effectively like, um, you know, consider it a sandbox, um, an experimentation and collaboration framework, a safe environment in which all different types of ecosystem actors from everyday individuals through to banks, through to telecommunications companies, through to academics, through to distinct services firms, through to the policy research centers, consumer protection agencies, whatever, right? Like, like the folks that are directly impacted by this, the folks that will directly benefit from this, they're part of this process. And they actually engage in this, this, this um, safe environment to uh, define like issues and opportunities, um, use, utilizing some consistent process, uh, prioritize which issues and opportunities are going to be um, tested or experimented with, um, engage through a distinct experimentation framework, to build an empirical body of evidence to support the way that something can or might not be done, um, make all of that transparent, right, because this is supposed to be a democracy that we live in, um, and then progressively deploy these, these new features, these new functions of the ecosystem based on uh, what is actually proven to be working most effectively, right? Like, and, and where does the data ethics thing come into that? Well, the, the whole process could be based on a data ethics system, like the way that we define it, you know, this consistent process through which the ecosystem or the organization decides, documents, and verifies that the data processing activities are socially preferable, both in their intent and their outcomes, right? So within that experimentation framework, you could do what we call a social preferability experiment, where you conduct an experiment the, the participants are the folks that are going to be directly impacted. The, um, some of the parameters of that research relate directly to the support that they have for both the intent and the likely outcomes of this, this activity, this new thing, this new feature of the ecosystem. And you develop this body of evidence. And let's just say we grossly oversimplify it. Social preferability is using a Likert scale one to seven. One being like, this is fucked, I'd never support it. Seven being, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever, like I've died and gone to heaven, right? Four being socially acceptable. What you could say is that nothing passes into some deployment pipeline unless it's greater than 5.5 on the social preferability scale, right? So anyways, th there's all different types of ways in which um, ecosystem actors could collaborate, could connect, because they have to connect, for connect, collaborate, um, and cooperate and coordinate to better operationalize data ethics or just ethics in general, right? These decision-making processes that have distinct um, uh, sort of ethical or moral considerations that are directly going to impact people in which you are optimizing for the best possible outcome. Mul multiple ways in which it can be done. Um, we have the capacity. Um, we have all of the tools and the techniques. Um, you know, we just we just kind of we just kind of need to shut the fuck up and stop talking and just start doing this stuff. Man, that echoes so much of what I've thought to myself. And sadly, I'm just here talking 
to people <laughs> on a podcast, right? So I feel like I, I've only got myself to blame for that one. Uh, <laughs> but I really think that the action needs to happen, like the action steps, what do we need to do? And let's just do it. And let's try these different things. So if you have an extra five minutes, I'd like to ask you one more question from Matt, but I know we're running a little let's, over. Let's so if you, ha- if you got to go, you got one more? All right, because Matt is on fire. I'm good. And, uh, and you're also, I don't, I understand what you mean about the visuals, making it easier to tell the story, but you were able to paint a perfect picture in my mind. So congrats on that. I don't know if you need the visuals <laughs> so much in this context. You're a great storyteller and you can relate your ideas very clearly. So Matt also asked, what are some of the everyday challenges that startups have when wanting to act more ethically and be more trustworthy? Yeah, look, that's a really good question as well. So um, startups have a bunch of unique challenges. They also have a bunch of unique benefits um, because, you know, let's start with the benefits, like they're new. Um, they can be inherently more ambitious. They don't have the same dogma or um, like cultural ideology or stigma or whatever that's associated with an organization that's say 50 years old or, you know, so there are lots of unique benefits, but there are also lots of challenges. Um, The biggest challenges and and it kind of just, it, it again relates to kind of like, you know, sort of paradigms in complex systems, but let's just go back to goals. Um, if the goals in the current system, uh, basically um, encourage them to to grow at all costs, which they kind of do. You know, the startups that are perceived as being really successful, um, that get all the tech crunch accolades and all that type of crap, um, they're typically the ones that 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 grow in alignment to the the kind of like like neoliberal ideology. Um, they raise heaps of venture funding. Um, they're probably making shit tons of ethical trade-offs, um, often without even knowing it because this isn't even part of their repertoire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, does that make them bad people? No, not even close. Like they're just doing what they're incentivized to do, right? So I think the, 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 the goals of a startup are really important. Now, the other unique thing about a startup, right, because they haven't started yet or they're just getting started, they can define those goals, right? They can incorporate as a co-op. They can incorporate as, um, you know, um, uh, a B Corp or some type of social enterprise or a community interest company or whatever it is. So there's different things that they can do to, as you put it, establish that North Star um, that, that like is really compelling, really empowering, um, something that people are just going to overwhelmingly support. And it's not all about money. Um, so, so that's one thing. And I think it's challenging and I recognize it's probably confronting, but I think a lot of founders that I'm paying attention to and observing and investing in, they are taking those courageous steps early on to say that we are an impact focused company. We are going to achieve this impact. This is how we think we'll measure it. Um, And we hypothesize that through that, we will have a viable business model by doing X, Y, and Z, but they lead with impact. So it's not impact tacked on, it's leading with impact. Um, it's kind of like like the commercial benefit is tacked on. I think that's really powerful. Um, the the other thing is actually like to be explicit about um, sort of the uh, I'm not going to say ethical rigor because that's probably too formal. Be explicit about the qualities or the attributes or the signals of trustworthiness 
that the organization is trying to behaviorally um, demonstrate. And there was a really great report from Hillary Sutcliffe, uh, Hillary Sutcliffe, excuse me, and some of her colleagues, TigTech, I think it's TigTech.com, might be TigTech.org, um, look it up, uh, that, that, that I think is, is probably the best kind. It's almost like a systematic review of the trust literature. And it, it, it exposes these seven signals of trustworthiness. Now, if you're a startup, you could, you could read that report. It's totally worth your time. You could read that report and you could go, all right, there's all these different things in it, but let's just prioritize these seven signals of trustworthiness. So public interest, um, intent, competence, respect, there's, there's different uh, signals, right? You could call them qualities or virtues. Um, now, what do they mean to us? And just define this, right? You could do this in a collaborative workshop. If you've got a remote team, you could use a visual collaboration tool like Mural, but, but like have a category for each of these seven and define what do they mean to us? How do we think we can act on them? How do we measure them, right? Like answering those three questions, like in this distinct workshop setting, um, and then come out of it with some perspective, share that with the broader team that wasn't involved, um, and start asking everyone, depending on the different functions, this might be a really small team, maybe it's like five people, it's easy to do. Um, but if it's bigger, you know, you distribute some of this stuff, right? How are you going to bring to life these qualities? How are we going to measure them? What do you need help with, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what that does is it explicitly makes those qualities of trustworthiness part of customer service, part of the design process, part of the product development process, part of machine learning, whatever it is, whatever function of the business, part of impact reporting, part of disclosure. Like don't just design a terms and conditions experience that's designed to manipulate and encourage someone to say yes without understanding, right? What are the qualities of trustworthiness that are relevant to this disclosure process? You know, um, that, that like, and there's so many other things that we could talk about, but just taking those seven qualities or signals of trustworthiness, um, asking those, those questions, answering them, and then distributing, uh, distributing them throughout the organization in an attempt to encourage their, uh, uh, sort of integration into everyday activities. Like yeah, it's not going to be perfect straight away, but holy crap, that would be so powerful. I would love, I would love to see startups doing that. Hmm. Yeah. And, like you said, leading with impact and how important that is to the greater ecosystem, going back to that ecosystem. And when you see other startups doing that, then it in a way gives you permission that I can do that too. And as you mentioned before, I think another huge piece of it is defining the, the purpose, values, and principles. At a startup, you have, like you said, five guys in a room and, or, or women, and you can define those, the, the purpose, the values, and principles, but rarely do we see that being designed and actually like thought in depth about because there are other incentives and we are trying to just put out the fire that is right in front of us and not really think about that larger strategy and how we're going to be more trustworthy in the greater environment. So I really appreciate that insight. I find it, it's absolutely thought provoking to think about how and in what way startups can do that. That's kind of the area that I play in most. So for me, it's really exciting to think about how startups can be implementing these different ways of being more ethical, more trustworthy. And I've got one more question for you. This is the last one. And then Go we're going to call it. it, you hinted at it earlier. 
<laughs> and I want to know, are you a robot? <laughs> I don't know. And that's the scary thing, right? I probably couldn't tell you. Excellent, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on here and enlightening me to all of this. It's been a great way for me to start my week. We're doing this on a Monday morning, my time, Monday evening, your time. And now I have a lot to ponder over the week, over the next month, over the next year. It's incredible to just get to listen to you and open my mind to all of these new ideas and hear your depth, your experience, your insights. I cannot thank you enough, Nathan. <laughs> Appreciate it a lot. Thanks for having me on. I'll, uh, I'll go see if I've uh, missed bedtime or if I can uh, sneak, sneak in a couple of snuggles before. All right, man. Take care. See you, mate.